Blog Talk Radio. Carol the Coach. Sex, love, and relationships. We talk about it here. Carol the Coach. Compassion with contemporary relevance. I am a psychotherapist. I can be your personal life coach and I can help you with your issues. There are no problems too small or too big. You can talk about anything. Speaker, columnist, radio TV host, and commentator. Carol the Coach brings messages of wellness and empowerment within reach of everyday people every day. Almost five years ago, I lost my soulmate in an accident. He was killed in a plane crash. Life just for me has seemed to stop. There are groups all over the city. I mean, I teach one. It is a specific way to start thinking so that you shift how you see the world, which then shifts your energy, and then you feel better and you actually see things differently. Carol the Coach. Always available to at carolthecoach.com. Now I've got Russell on the line. I'm 47 years old. I'm a truck driver. I'm married. I have a wife in San Francisco. Okay. I haven't been home in six months. My thing is, I, I don't know if I have a sex addiction or what the problem is. Why do I want what I can't have? And as soon as I can have it, I don't want it anymore. You're right on target when you say, I don't know if I have a sexual addiction. Well, guess what? Yes, you do. And you know what? That's my specialty, Russell. So you're at the right place. Continue. I meet women online and, and I'm in a different part of the country. I, I travel all 48 states, so I love sex. I hear self-esteem issues. You never felt good enough and you didn't feel like you were getting what you should have then. And you're really reenacting that now. Do you want to change that about yourself? You know, when Russell said, I love sex, it might have been that he loved anticipating sex or he loved pursuing sex or he loved how sex feel. I mean, there is no doubt that sex can be an endorphin producer, but more often than not, it's about what's underneath the sex that really is the addiction. And you've heard me say that oftentimes the actual addiction is the anticipation or it's the novelty or it's the what's out there uh, phenomena. So that's why if you are a sex addict, you really do need to get with somebody who is 100% trained and certified to work with you to get to the root of the problem as quickly as possible. Hi, I'm Carol Jurgensen-Sheets, and you know me as Carol the Coach, and I'm here to help you with your issues. I wanted to talk about the banyan tree, you know, You all know that I highly endorse this new Banyan Therapy Group in Los Angeles, California. Their therapy group works with addicts, their partners, and families from a multidimensional partner trauma model. That is my APSATS degree. That means that we're especially sensitive to partner trauma. And Dan Drake is the executive director of this facility. It's in Los Angeles, California, and they provide intensive outpatient programs for sex addicts who need more support but are unable to attend or afford residential treatment due to work, family, or other constraints. Go to www.banyan, 
bantherapy.com. That's B-A-N-Y-A-N-T-H-E-R-A-P-Y.com. And I received an email from a woman, and she she was really kind of beside herself. She wasn't exactly sure how to handle things, and I said that I would read her email on the air and give her some advice. So we will call her Eileen, and she says, Carol, thanks for your ministry and your podcast. I listen faithfully each week. I've got a question. You know, I discovered my husband's addiction about two years ago. He didn't hesitate to own it, and over the course of several weeks, I learned of a history with sexual addiction that encompassed our entire 20-year marriage. It included porn, clubs, and massage. Thankfully, he was ready to be free of it and made a commitment to live in purity from that moment on, which I believe that he has. So this is amazing that she believes him, that he has convinced her, and that in her eyes he has been sober. However, she says, I still sometimes have questions. I read a lot about the issues and want to discuss what I learn and share with him. Each time I bring the subject up, he either changes the subject, replies quickly, or moves on and gets very uncomfortable and seems embarrassed or ashamed. You know, I feel like we're in this together and I want us to continue to grow and learn, but he seems to want me to completely move on and act as if his history has been completely erased from our memory. She says, honestly, I think my husband has done a great job of being sober, but many of the important components of recovery are just not a part of his life. For example... Only one of his friends knows about his issue. He doesn't seem to read or want to strive to learn about the topic. Although he initially did read several books I asked him to read, and he was part of an online group for about nine months. He has tried three different counselors, but only lasted about three sessions with each. And he didn't seem to think they knew what they were doing. You know, I don't know if they're not CSATs or... Absats trained, they may not. So she says, I just feel like in the absence of a good set of routines and practices, I'm just waiting for him to come to the end of his own strength and perhaps crash and burn. Well, I get that because I always tell my partners. You know, I say, you will know your husband is working a good recovery program if he's attending meetings, if he has a sponsor, If he's reading essay or SAA or he's in Celebrate Recovery, he's doing the work, he's praying, meditating, um, he has filters on his phone, you know, that kind of stuff. Although I got to tell you, Eileen, this is not unusual because when men are doing pretty good work, they don't want to keep rehashing it. They would rather believe that if they don't talk about it, you won't be as hurt and they won't feel as much shame. So here's what I recommend. You need to get yourself to an APSATS counselor. That's A-P-S-A-T-S. These are the only partner-sensitive, trauma-based therapists who know what you probably have been through in your life. And they're ready to help you and him 
to talk about the shame, the guilt, and the pain that he's felt. Now, I get that was a couple years ago, and there's probably a part of you that doesn't want to rehash things either. But he needs to be doing his work for at least three to five years so that he really develops new neurocircuitry in the brain. And that's why i got to tell you, if he gets complacent and he doesn't try, and if he's not really able to talk to you about it, your relationship will suffer. I'm not saying he'll go back to sexual addiction, but you got to be able to talk about the hard stuff. And it sounds like you've done a good job of role modeling that, and he'd prefer to avoid it or minimize it, you know, away. It's kind of like he's, He's probably thinking, well, if I don't have a problem, why do I need to talk about it? So you said, how can I encourage him to build into his life the practices that support real recovery? She says, I know some wives give ultimatums like a separation, but since I don't believe he's acted out, that seems too harsh and not the right approach. I agree, and that's why you need to get with a trained specialist who can help him to at least talk about this. And together, you can you can actually point out the gratitudes that you have going on in your life, and he can get into a good recovery program. Does is there a one size fits all for all addicts? No, but if I were working with him, I'd say you got to do the hard work for three to five years because you can't take the risk of any kind of slip or relapse. And the kind of work that we expect you to do is only going to better yourself as a man. And, Eileen, you've probably heard me say it before, addicts in recovery are 95% better than all men out there. So it's a, it's, it is an investment but it's an investment that pays great dividends for him, for you, and for the coupleship. So thanks for writing, and I'm really excited that um, you might go to the APSATS website, APSATS, and look for somebody who's located in your city, or go to a sexual addictions therapist, and that you can get through sexhelp.com, put in your zip code and your city and get somebody who knows what they're doing so that they don't waste either one of your times. If worse comes to worse, I can consult with you. Uh, I charge regular fees and use Zoom, but there's a lot of us that do that. Um, If you're a coach and a mental health therapist, you can actually help people across state lines make sure they get know the kind of resources they need to make their life um, more fulfilling and more stable. All right, and speaking of APSATs, if you're a clinician, and I know I've got a lot of clinicians all over the world that listen to this show because they want to find out more about sexual addiction, if you're a clinician, we have a new class starting through online teaching. We do it face-to-face, and we do online webinars, and that is February 23rd and 24th, and also March 2nd and 3rd. So go to our website, appsats.com, 
and find out about our training. And, I mean, this training is unbelievable because it teaches you how to work with partners that have been traumatized and help the coupleship to get healthier. And that is what life is all about. So I highly recommend that anybody who has um, any kind of clinical training, they probably need to be partner sensitive. And that is by knowing about trauma and how trauma affects the brain and what the partner's been through. I have the blessing of being a CSAT, a Certified Sexual Addictions Therapist, and an APSAT, which is a uh, partner-sensitive clinician who understands trauma. So now I have done all my commercials for tonight, and tonight we actually have something very interesting. You know, if you've listened to any of the archives, you know that I have interviewed Ross, Rosenberg before. He's a specialist on codependency and narcissism and trauma. He has rewritten his book, The Human Magnet Syndrome, and he wants to share his thoughts and insights as to why people attract certain people into their lives. Now, one of the things I know as a partner trauma specialist is that you are not a co-addict if you fell in love was an addict. And yet what Ross is going to be talking about is the fact that as a marital therapist, oftentimes we believe that sometimes you do attract people into your life to heal your own wounds from your childhood. So if there's been some trauma in your childhood and you didn't get your needs met, it very well may be that you have attracted a person who is emotionally unavailable so that you can get yourself strong and healthy and learn assertiveness and boundary setting and create the life you deserve. I do not want you to think that all partners are in any way codependent because they aren't. It's just that simple. They are not. But you may be asking yourself, how and why does this happen to me? How did I meet a man who tricked me, who connived me, who was deceitful? Now, we always tell partners, you know what? Any sex addict will tell you that when you have an addiction, you learn how to lie with the best of them. And so more than likely, you know, this addiction was not known to you when you first met this person. Maybe they didn't have it. Or maybe not only did they not have it, but maybe they didn't know what was going on. And so it's important to kind of do a history so that you do know what's going on. And then what I believe to be true is that when you get that thorough understanding of what is what contributed to this problem, you are then able to really decide what you need to do about it. And addicts want to know, too. 
this is horribly uncomfortable for them. And they want to know what they can do to make things better. You know, what they can do to make themselves healthier. So, if you're living in the world of addiction and you're a sex addict and you want to understand yourself better, I would highly recommend that you read Out of the Shadows and Facing the Shadows with Patrick Karn. And then, if you're somebody that definitely knows that you've been wounded as a child, then I would highly recommend that you work on any issues that will help you to feel better about yourself so that you don't have trauma reenactment. We all know trauma reenactment, unfortunately, causes people to act out their addictions. And you know what? What I know um, is that they don't know that they're reenacting their trauma. They actually really want to be healthy. They want to live a life of integrity. But when you deal with addiction, you're into medicating. You're into numbing. You're into avoiding and being in denial. And when that happens, wow, all I can say is that, you know, your life will get out of control. Do you believe me? Well, I want you to because I've been doing this for over 10 years now. And I've worked with a lot of addicts that just don't feel like they can function in a way where they can make healthy decisions. So, you're listening to Carol Jurgensen Sheets. I'm Carol the Coach, and I am so looking forward to um, Ross being on the show. I just saw where he showed up, and somehow he got disconnected. So we're going to try to give him a call if he does not call back because that's important. You know, we got to have we got to have our guests on, don't we? How did this happen to me with Carol the coach? I can't wait to interview him because he really is specialist on narcissism and trauma and codependency and this human magnet syndrome can cause quite a bit of Uh, fury and at the same time what I believe is that he is acting from a perspective where really he's looking at what are people's unmet needs and how do they kind of replicate that so I'm going to try to call him on the show and I look forward to you paying attention to what it is 
that you want to know from him. Okay, so I've never done this, but I am going to call the guest. I'm not quite sure how to do it, but you're actually coming in with me, so here we go. It must be through my thumb. This is kind of fun. I know you're probably going, oh, Carol, come on. But truly, um, if I make if I make this happen, you and I will be doing something together here. Uh, I'm not sure. This might be his work number, but here we go. Okay, we are dialing him in. And I'm hoping that he answers. Oh, not call was not answered. Okay. Well, hopefully he will call it. Because I know that Ross probably knows what to do. So I'm going to play our commercial, and when we come back, hopefully he will be on the line. You're listening to Carol Jurgensen Teets. I'm Carol the Coach, and this is Sex Help with Carol the Coach. It's always hard to know what we need to do when it comes to somebody who can't get through. So here we go. You know, I was talking with a man today who's getting ready to do a disclosure. And when we get done talking with Ross, I'm going to tell you why he decided to do that disclosure and why he was ready to get 100% honest about his life and about his coupleship. He wanted to start a new experience. So, Ross, welcome to the Carol the Coach Show. How are you? Oh, hi, Carol. Thank you so much for having me on the show again. Absolutely. I'm just glad you got through. I know that there have been some technical difficulties in New York, and I think you probably experienced some. Hey, tell us a little yeah. bit about fact that you have rewritten the human magnet syndrome. What made you decide that it was time for a new edition? Well, first, it's not a new edition. It's actually a complete rewrite of the book. But to, to, to your question, I, I had this idea eight years ago, and it was a small idea about people being different personality types being attracted to each other, and that grew into one idea it grew into another. Next thing you know, I wrote this small training and then came Pessy, a company called Pessy in contact me and said, hey, we'd love for you to do this training. And it became you know, very well received. And they said, hey, let's turn this into a book. You know, here, you know, I had not previously experienced such success, you know, in the training. And so I said, sure. And they said, oh, just take the book, take your, you know, PowerPoint and your ideas and, you know, just turn it into a book. <laughs> so <Right>. I did. <laughs> and I and and I did my best that I could. I and I I wrote, you know, the human magnet syndrome six years ago. And I'm proud of it for what it was back then, but now it is completely developed, expanded. So many of the ideas that people liked have been broadened. 
the experience of six years, both in my own work as a, a therapist, in my own personal recovery, has helped me understand that there's a lot more content and information and theory I wanted to share. And so the book not only is completely rewritten from top to bottom and is 100 page, 100, about 100 pages longer, but it, it's, it's a different feel. Okay, so that's how it all came to be. Now, you know, obviously there's this dance that you talk about in the book that you believe yeah. is a perfect metaphor for kind of the dysfunctional attraction that somebody may have for another person. And I've got a lot of listeners that are listening to tonight's show because they wonder, why did this happen to me? Did I cause this? So can we talk a little bit about that? Yeah, and I'm so glad that that you phrased it that way. So many of of our clients, you know, who – are in relationship with narcissists, pathological narcissists. They believe that they have caused the problem. It is their fault that they are being hurt or they're suffering so much. So what happens is, explained in in my work, a person who is a caregiving type, who's patient, altruistic, and sacrificing, or what I call someone with who's codependent or has self-love deficit disorder, they are the perfect match for an opposite personality type, the selfish, the taking, the needing, the entitled. So, but there's something that happens when they meet each other, the feeling relationship, a magnet, the codependent feels so natural and no relationship, the narcissist does too. So these two come together and feel so deeply in love but the relationship is always for the needs of the narcissist. And it works just like a dancing partnership. The leader needs the follower, and the follower needs the leader. And they both get lost in what the roles that they've known their whole life. The codependent is the caregiver. And what a better partner for a narcissist is someone who says she's sorry or who's always giving in. And what a better person for the, the codependent is someone who will always talk and take charge. If you have no self-esteem, you look for someone who is full of themselves. So it's this relationship attraction, this magnetism that makes these two people feel so alive and so in love, this syndrome. And, it's, and, it, and anyone who is a codependent knows that this to be true. And it's hard to stop if you don't know what it is. Well, absolutely. And and I know that somebody who has a tendency to be codependent, who mm-hmm. really puts his or her needs on the back burner for that of a narcissist, oftentimes wonders why he or she, and let's say she in this situation, is being treated so poorly. And that's part of the dance, right. too, is it not? Oh, yeah. Well, and that that's like one of the defining features of a codependent is they know that they're not um, they're not getting the same amount of love, respect, and care in the relationship. They know that their partner is being selfish. They know that they're being unfair. They, but yet they try to change that person. They try to change someone to be someone they were never. 
They fell in love with someone because of the human magnet syndrome, because he's a narcissist. They didn't choose a narcissist. They gravitated towards them just as they gravitated towards every narcissist that they've ever fallen in love with. And they try to make them someone different. They find out that they can't, and they keep trying. And then they stay in a relationship because healthy or healthier people who end up with a narcissist might try to change. Eventually, they're going to get tired of it, and they say, you know, I'm out of here. They're codependent because they don't have self-love or self-respect. They feel trapped in their loneliness. Every codependent will tell you that the primary reason they stay in a relationship is the shame of the deep loneliness that I call pathological loneliness. It's a withdrawal symptom-like experience. But the codependent, if they break up with the narcissist who they might be unhappy with, they might be sad, he might be cheating, he might be, or she or he, they would rather stay in a relationship than deal with this, this psychic, the psychological pain of loneliness. And that takes control of their judgment and their insight and keeps them in this dysfunctional dance. So are you saying that a bad relationship is better than no relationship at all if this person has deep wounds and, and needs that have typically gone unmet? Yes. See, see, as I explained in my later work, what I call my, my codependency cure work, is I, I explained that codependency really is a trauma disorder. Every codependent, everyone, um, has had a childhood in which they experienced what attachment trauma. When one of their parents was a pathological narcissist and they were not loved the way that a child should be. In fact, many of them experienced neglect, abandonment, or abuse. And they had to um, mold themselves into another person to make that parent give them some form of attention or love. It is... It is in that experience, that attachment trauma is born the shame, um, the core shame, that they are fundamentally a defective person. From that core shame, as a child develops and becomes, moves through childhood, they, they experience a life of loneliness, deep, pervasive loneliness. This is, this is the cauldron within which pathological, adult pathological loneliness is born. So they move through their life feeling lonely because they can only be loved if there's someone else that crystallizes somewhere around their adolescence into what I call a relationship template that when they only feel comfortable around people who can be as they expect and they anticipate. So this is where they start to prefer being around narcissists unconsciously because that's what they know. And narcissists will stay with them, whereas healthy people will leave them. So to the point of the, the beginnings of pathological loneliness can trace back to their childhood. And, in, and that is why codependency treatment, or what I call self-love deficit disorder treatment, has to resolve the trauma, the shame, and understand that pathological loneliness is, um, is an addiction-like experience that if a codependent should leave the narcissist, they will feel that, that loneliness, like an addict experiences withdrawals, so much so that they will go back to the narcissist. They'd rather be unhappy than deal with their feelings that they've been running away from. Well, can I ask you then, from a clinical standpoint and a technical standpoint, 
Oh, sure. Can you be codependent and have had your needs met in appropriate ways in your childhood of origin? No, it's 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 actually it's it's actually um, impossible, and which is why I, I wrote my first book the way I did, and the second book uh, even better, is I have a very strong clinical background, and because I think anyone can make up terms and theories, and so. So the more I learned about uh, this emerging field, it's hugely growing, of uh, trauma, the more I, I was able to connect codependency to trauma. And so if you if, – think of it this way, Carol. If you are habitually in relationships with men or women who treat you uh, without respect, love, and care, who are never really can be empathetic or nice or, or just um, g- generous to you, and you keep you keep yourself in these relationships where you're unhappy and sad and angry. What causes a person to sacrifice so much in their life, and then pass it on to their children? And I, I actually wrote my very first chapter of the new book about the the, the, the generational impact of, of codependency. This is a person who is who bears deep deep scars and trauma wounds a person that can stay in relationships that defy a lot has to be um, impacted psychologically severely. so if so but but i have two answers so one is a, a codependent as i understand them as i explained in my book um who has attachment trauma who carries the shame and the loneliness and is addicted to the narcissist it has to come somewhere. That type of psychopathology has to have an origin. So it might not come from a mom and a dad. You might have been raised in a foster home. You might have lived in such extreme poverty or something would have had to happen during your formative year that made you feel so unlovable that, that would develop these core psychological constructs. And then there are exceptions. <laughs> and there's always exceptions, whether it's historical, you know, it could be a wartime, it could be parents who died. So, but 99% of the time, and I've been doing this for, well, I've been a therapist for 30 years and I've been working on this stuff for as much. It can almost always be traced. I haven't had many in my career that could not be traced to the attachment trauma. That's really interesting, and I have to agree with you that anybody who ends up in a codependent, well, in a codependent relationship with a narcissist does have attachment issues from the past. I have also experienced that um, because that's one of the reasons they put up with that kind of treatment. Exactly. That is unmet need to be validated. Right, and then- it's a change. I literally changed the name of codependency. The, 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 the interesting thing is that when I rewrote the book, The Human Magnet Syndrome, I put on ice my, my real second book I wanted to write, which was the book on the self-love recovery and the codependency cure, which basically says dependency is now self-love deficit disorder. And I wanted the world to know that this is really a problem with self-love deficit that is connected to trauma. 
And once you can put your arms around it, and that's why um, all the codependents that I know that have been introduced to the term self-love deficit disorder, they embrace it because it explains their primary core challenge is how can you, as you just said, Carol, how can you be in a relationship that uh, um, is so harmful and you're so lonely and stay there? You have to not love yourself because anyone that does love themselves, there's a point in time where they say, you know, I'm out of here, WTF. So Mm -hmm. it is the absence of the self-love that not only keeps them there, but also as a new part of my book is about gaslighting. It's about mind control that um, narcissists will, um, will, will find, will find that codependent, uh, 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 sexually abusive pedophile playground. They can spell out. They know exactly the type of person who will fall prey to their charm and their, their, uh, their uh, manipulation. And, and that is a person that doesn't love themselves, that is insecure, that doesn't have a lot of social or family support. And you get that person oh, now, without self-love. For our, our listening audience, mm-hmm. you mentioned the term gaslighting. And from your perspective, what is gaslighting? Right. And, and completely blinded. There are so many people talking about it now. No one has come up with a clinical definition. So gaslighting is a form of mind control in which you make a, um, a person whom you want to control and dominate, um, you make them believe something about themselves that was not true in the beginning or was partially true. You, you manipulate their environment to prove to them they have this narrative, this gaslighting, this light narrative, start to behave or, or um, and act that problem, and then the gaslighter um, um, puts it on even deeper. Once that person falls victim to this gaslit condition, they become more psychologically, personally, and socially immobilized, and they become more dependent on the gaslighter. They become more isolated from the outside world, and they they go deeper into this problem that might never have existed in the first time. The ultimate goal of gaslighters who all have sociopathic qualities um, is to achieve complete control of the dependent. To do that, they twist their own perception um, and their ability to what is right or wrong. So gaslighting, simply said, is to, is to get someone to, that something is really wrong with them Prove it to them, and then they start to be that, and now they need the gaslighter, and now they're forever trapped. Yeah, that's a a good definition of that, and of course that came from the 19, what was it, 40s movie, Gaslighting. Yeah, Um, Yeah, I just saw it the other night. (laughs) We see this a lot in partner betrayal. When a partner has a sex addict that she's in love with, oftentimes the sex Mm -hmm. addict want to make her feel crazy so that he can continue to act out. And so that feeling of happiness, yeah, that she can't depend on her own sense of reasoning and reality starts to doubt herself. Exactly. And I'm glad you brought that up. So in the case of a, of a sex addict, if you, cause there's different, you know, cause sex addicts can either be 
Narcissists or codependency, addiction is separate by itself. But if you are a narcissist and a sex addict, and you are the type of narcissist that has sociopathic qualities, so you, which is probably the worst type of sex addict to be, to, to be in a relationship with, you neither have a conscience or you have empathy, so you will not only cheat and uh, lie to your partner in order to satiate your sexual compulsivity, but you will turn your partner's uh, uh, awareness, um, her, um, her thinking, her ideas, her belief system, on, on, you will distort them so that she no longer can even trust her observations and succumbs to this idea that she is the crazy, paranoid one. And once they do that, and they destroy their, their partner's ability to go right from and they can do exactly what they want at the cost of psychologically um, scarring the person that they, they, they say that they love and care for. So now, do you ever, do you ever see women that are gaslighters? I know there's, you know, there's, there's this belief that, you know, most, most of the narcissists are men and most of the sociopaths are men. But um, I, I believe, and, and I don't have research to back this up, but I believe that, uh, you know, 60% of all pathological narcissists are, are women. And, um, and I believe that. Would you say that again? You um, said 60% of all pathological narcissists are women. No, I, I, actually, that's a mistake. If I said that, thanks for catching me on that. <laughs> I, I did. I that. knew that was not what you said. Yeah. Okay. I mean, you did say it. <laughs> thank you. It's me. very late for me. I get up at 6 in the morning, so thank you for that. <laughs> yes. I, no, I, and, and there's all sorts of reasons for that, and, and I can't prove it, but, um, but that's been my experience. Now, when it comes to percentage, there's more women. So, so if I'm going to guess... There is, of all the sociopaths, I see women gaslighting men. It's just you see that less often. And it is harder to spot because, because the sociopathic woman has many more, how to say this, but social conventions that they can hide behind. I mean, people tend to look before, you know, this, I don't want to get, get caught in, you know, man versus woman, but I do believe that. Absolutely. Women can gaslight men. I've seen it. It's just you don't see it as often. Got it, got it, got it. Okay, now let me ask you a couple of other things. Um, You know, you talked about pathological narcissists, and in your book you Mm -hmm. also talked about covert narcissists. So will you tell us, give us the definition of both of those. Okay, so what I did was in, in the Human Magnus Center books, I explained that these narcissists that I talk about are pathological narcissists. And I said, and as any clinician that's training in the diagnostic field, I wanted to be specific to a certain um, type of psychopathology or mental health disorder. So within this category are people with narcissistic personality disorder, borderline personality disorder, antisocial personality disorder, and or have an out-of-control addiction. All of those disorders have a core narcissistic, ethically narcissistic streak. They're all different, but they all have a core pathological narcissistic streak. The only difference is 
a person who is addicted, you don't know exactly what it is until they are sober and in recovery. But while they are out of control in their addiction, they're acting. So, so that, so understanding that now of the narcissistic personality disorder, um, I subcategorize that. There are four subcategories that I talk about in my book. There, and before I talk about covert narcissism, I'll say there is what I call garden variety narcissism, which is what we understand as narcissistic personality disorder. There is productive narcissism. These are the people that um, are inventors, Steve Jobs, Gates, whomever. These are people that are so narcissistic they believe they can change the world, and they do because they're that smart and gifted, but they're very narcissistic. Tom Edison, there is some malignant narcissists. These are like the Castro's, Saddam Hussein. It's a form of, of narcissism that has a little bit of sociopathy and paranoia in it. And then the, the last category is the covert narcissist. These are the most dangerous of people with narcissistic personality disorder because they are aware of their narcissism and they realize that if that, if those traits would show in public, they would lose the ability to have a career or get the attention that they most need. So these are the, these are the folks who they can be therapists, they can be teachers, they can be rabbis and priests, politicians who play the very empathetic person in the outside, who every, who are able to be because outer of kindness and attitude and genuine personality type. But Let me just relationships. stop you real fast. I have one is you're breaking up a little bit, and I'm wondering, okay. are you on your cell phone? I, I am on my cell phone, and I do not have a landline. And that's absolutely and fine. You, and and, you, and usually my cell or, phone, I mean, it could be that, it, it could be my hand. So thank you yeah, for letting I was me know say, that. Put it on the desk or the table, whatever, and put the speaker on. Let's see if that works a little bit better. Okay, let's do that. So so as as I was saying, they narcissists will construct our now type the like I could decide they're narcissistic, they're selfish, and their wives, their husbands their ch- that are they're in our circle, they all experience narcissism, have so much on so they they have so much motivation to keep that that mask on because that is what allows them to um, make money and achieve prominence. So they're the very dangerous ones because they're the ones that we fall in love with and then later um, can be hurt or destroyed or, or, or psychologically you know, um, manipulated by. Interesting. Okay, so those are the four by the types. Way, In your book, The Human Magnet Syndrome, uh, you describe all four of those so that somebody who thinks, hey, I'm, I believe I'm with a narcissist, they can help to decide what criteria does he or she meet that makes right. him or her a narcissist. Okay. So if we look at pathological narcissists, 
you know, this broad diagnostic group of people, what they all have mm-hmm. in common is um, now the selfishness looks different. The, their personality disorder. So um, entitlement, um, this feeling of grand, um, this grandiose belief that they are bigger and more important than other people, that um, they tend to need attention. They need to be um, in the front of almost most of, of their activities. They do not do well with constructive feedback or criticism. If you should correct someone with a pathological narcissistic disorder, again, depending, uh, depending on which one, they act differently, they all will get upset and have a narcissistic injury and will attack back. And sometimes the attack is rage. If it is a borderline, someone with borderline personality disorder, the attack could be um, horrendous. If it's someone with antisocial personality disorder, the attack could be calculated and very uh, um, unpredictable. But the garden variety narcissist, someone with NP narcissist injury, provokes the need for the narcissist to make that person feel bad, to punish them. And anyone who's been in a relationship with a pathological narcissist will tell you of the danger of trying to set a boundary, trying to confront the narcissist, because there's always a punishment. Other things to look for are lack of empathy. Again, the lack of empathy in the sociopath looks different from who is borderline, borderline just personality disorder or some NPD. It is when they do not feel that their needs are met or somehow that person is not fitting in the category that, that um, meets their needs and their desires, they cannot feel empathy if that person is in pain or is struggling, or if they are the, uh, the subject or the victim of that person's wrath. And that is, that is the, one of the more difficult elements of the, the, the narcissist because people watch the victim of the narcissist get beat up emotionally, physically, sometimes sexually, and they just wonder, first of all, why is the codependent doing this over and over again? But does narcissists have any compassion? Don't they know what they're doing is harmful? When the narcissist has been crossed and there's a narcissistic in, they are reacting as if that person deserves to be hurt. So those are just a few of, of several um, defining characteristics of pathological narcissism. Got it. You know, this is so fascinating because we really are talking about personality disorders that are not likely to change unless there's some very, very intensive work, if at all. And so you want our listening audience to know that if you're with these kind of people, you really have to protect yourself. You have to set good boundaries, and you probably at some point need to make the decision that you can do better, that you don't have to settle for a narcissist or... Um, see, but see that that type of discussion falls flat. This, okay, if you consider that whole discussion with someone who has this disorder, who has who is so afraid of being alone that they will say, "You're right, Carol." Absolutely. But when 
when it comes down to actually setting a boundary and pulling the trigger on that boundary, they I do in my treatment to make your work that um, this part of my trainings and uh, material that um, training material that I sell online is I talk about the way to solve or cure this codependency thing is to look at it as a trauma disorder and start at the very beginning of when the disorder began. And if you work at core wounds and you address those and you help that person move forward and heal and eventually become integrated psychologically and they start to love themselves, that is when the, the advice from the Ross Rosenbergs or the Carol uh, sheets, that's when all of a sudden it goes, you're right, and then they're ready to execute. So I say this to both the people who are, are suffering from codependency and therapists who are listening to this, is that they can't listen to our advice if the deepest part of their psychological health doubts their efficacy and, 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 and won't give them permission to be happy. Okay, I get what you're saying there. Absolutely. So now tell our listening audience, how can people ascertain your materials? How can they get your book? And what can okay. they do to get more information? So I, I created this company called Self Love Recovery Institute, and that uh, which is selfloverecovery.com, and, and that's the one uh, place that has my seminars. I have online video some seminars. I also live seminars. We we have weekend retreats. We have a good amount of services and help people find a way out of this psychological morass. And if you sign up to, uh, to our, our, our email blast, what our email list, we'll, you, uh, we'll send you a, uh, but I also have a YouTube channel that's been quite popular. I think it's almost seven and a half million views that I post. I post these are free. So, so you don't, um, you don't have to like spend your all. And if you can get some of this stuff for free, just go to YouTube and you put name Ron Rosenberg. Videos there that'll help you understand most of the Okay, so they can go to YouTube, and you said they can put in Ross Rosenberg, your name, which is R O S E N B E R G. Are there any other yeah, ads? That could help them get to the right YouTube. Oh no! Tr- trust, trust me. <laughs> They'll put my name in. My YouTube makes me, makes me very visible on YouTube. So you put my name in, it, you're going to see my videos. Um, YouTube uh, and Google, who owns it, that they have these algorithms that if, if, if millions of people are watching you, they make it really easy for people to find you. And but so if you want the in-depth experience and the material. That, I mean, some of my videos are six hours long. Uh, you go to Self Love Recovery, um, selfloverecovery.com. But if you want to get you know bits and pieces of what I'm talking about, or you want to read a book, um, you can. Um, the information is out there. Just just believe that you're worth the effort. The, the okay, so they can look at your here. videos, and you have some that are actually six hours long. That's almost like. A, 
they're at a seminar of yours. Oh, absolutely. That's what I said. I, I have I have seminar videos that are specifically designed for um, psychotherapists and the audience. Um, and I've been giving these seminars for six years. And both group of people equally um, um, get something powerful from these um, these uh, these videos, so they're that's why um, uh, seminars, and okay. and they're on all sorts of subjects, um, and, and I, I won't say all the subjects that that um, that help people understand because I believe knowledge is power. You can't change this this codependency or self love deficit disorder thing if you don't know what it is. And everyone everyone understands it for something that in the seventies. That was a good idea back then, but it has not worked. The treatment for codependency has not worked, and I am proposing a new way to look at it and then a new way to solve it. Excellent. So now, again, the name of your new book is? The Human Magnet Syndrome, The Codependent Narcissist Trap, it will be available at Self-Love Recovery and in Amazon. And uh, I believe it will be very helpful to anyone who, who, uh, who listens to this interview and believes that there's something that can help them break free of this trap that they've been in. Got it, got it, got it. And now last but not least, obviously you've got a lot of definitions that sure do seem to be your own. And I saw a couple of them that I had never heard before. Can you talk about relationship math? <laughs> it's it's I'm I, blessed that I'm able to write about something and and create my names and theories. They, they and everything that I've ever created comes from something something that was taught to me. Relationship math said that. that the codependent, that means you are what I call you could only you only feel good and happy if with another person so a half needs to find another half. So the codependent and the narcissist half plus half equals one. The relationship makes them feel whole. That's a half of a relationship. A half and a half is one, and that's a half a relationship. The two people with self-love is one, a person, one equals two, and that's a full relationship. Individual, psychologically healthy, self-loving people don't need a relationship to feel whole. So I have this little, uh, and it's on a black equals one half a relationship. You can't look for another person to make you feel whole. Come to the relationship whole. And that is when you experience the love that you've always wanted and the love that you always deserve. Well, I get that. Well, Ross, as usual, it has been a pleasure having you on. You know, you're definitely a teacher and you have come up with some real fascinating and professional ways of dealing with people, helping couples to work together or apart. And um, I just wish you the best of success, and I hope that my listeners will go to your name, Ross Rosenberg, that's R-O-S-E-N-B-E-R-G, 
on YouTube and take a look at what you have to offer. Thank you so much. Well, thank you. And thank you so much for having me on your show, and I wish the very best to you. Well, thank you so much, and we'll have you on again. All right, that was Russ Eisenberg, and he talks about codependency, narcissism, and trauma. And if you've experienced being with somebody who only thinks of himself, if you feel like you're chronically putting your own needs on the back burner, or if you believe you have core wounds that just don't get you to a partner or a spouse or a relationship where you're at least on an equal footing, if not, you know, I really believe that the best kind of partnerships are those where each one of you treats each other um, better than you treat yourself. But that has to be fairly equal. If you're constantly dealing with a relationship where you are not recognized or honored, you probably need to look at Ross's stuff because you very well may be with a narcissist or at least an unhealthy person who's wounded him or herself. Okay, I am Carol Jurgensen Sheets, a.k.a. Carol the Coach. And as I say at the end of every show, there will only be one of you at all times, so fearlessly have the courage to be yourself. Have a great day. <laughs>